Before we jump into this conversation, just a quick word of thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Without your support and encouragement, projects like this wouldn't be possible. You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and each episode I sit down and sew with a different artist, and we talk about what working with cloth has taught us about being human. This week's review comes from the Sewing Mama Llama, who said there is so much to glean from Zach's conversation with other creatives and artists. They are all truly finding meaning in their work with textiles, and their insight and conversation keeps me thinking and motivated to continue to find my truth and purpose in the work I create. Now, if you're getting something out of this like the Sewing Mama Llama is, why not take a moment to rate and review Seamside? That is the number one best way for other folks to discover what's happening here with this show. I really do appreciate it. One of the things I love about the quilter Beverly Smith is that she talks about how quilting's like a magic carpet ride. You just never know where you're going to end up once you hop on, and I know that's true. In this conversation, we talk about how we find our people, both in the present day and our ancestors. We talk about taking control over our own life stories and the powers concealed in the fibers of the fabric we work with. I hope you enjoy, and I'll be back at the end with a few more words. Beverly, good morning. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for inviting me. I have wanted to talk to you for quite some time, so I'm glad that you were willing to sit down with me on this. Well, it's rainy where I am down here in Brasstown, North Carolina, but I, I appreciate you sitting down with me to chat a little bit. Well, thank you. I'm so appreciative that you invited me. I'm in my home studio. I'm in between studios. I'm still at the church and at the Brooklyn Collective in the historic district of Charlotte, North Carolina. That area was started by the first emancipated slaves coming up from South Carolina. And no one wanted to live in that area. It's like downhill, they would call it low country, All the waste and everything would go in that area. But when you think about these people being free for the first time, we're talking 1860s, they were glad to have this place to call their own. And they made it something out of nothing, creating businesses, everything that they needed right in that community, because, you know, Jim Crow segregation was still going on. Uh, They had some of the first schools for African-Americans in North Carolina. And people would come all over to come to school there. And so the church where I have my other art studio is one of the three remaining buildings in that community. And there's a gentleman that uh, owns the three buildings. And he suggested that I make an art studio at the church. So I was like, okay. And I had to start doing my research. And you would not believe that when I was growing up little, I grew up in Charlotte, but I never really knew about this community. And my family would always talk about this great cousin that died in the pulpit. I heard it when I was really little. 
I heard it when I would come home from college. It was an ongoing story. When I did my research, the Grace Church, where I have my studio set up, that's the church where my uncle passed away, where my a great cousin passed away. In the pulpit? In the pulpit. While he was preaching? While he was preaching on a Sunday morning, 1942. I've got the articles and everything. And then when I was introduced to this church, I started getting really lightheaded. I knew nothing about this background and connection initially. I just knew I was getting really lightheaded during the tour and I wanted to be polite because I really was enjoying the tour, but I was really getting so lightheaded. I had to excuse myself. Came right home. I expected just to go to sleep, right? Sleep it off. But I started researching, Googling, and that's when I found out it was my cousin, Jackson Israel. And so this is why I love quilts because of that implied spiritual connection between the seen and the unseen. My quilts keep leading me in this direction that it's almost like a magic carpet ride. I I never expected to really create quilts to show or sell, but to seek out like my inner being, what was my real purpose. And I felt like my ancestors could help lead me in that direction. So I kept with the quilts because of that, those experiences I kept having. And Bev, if you don't mind, let's let's go back just a second, because I'm curious as, so you you went to the church for the first time, you got lightheaded, you went home, you did the family, you did the historical research, you found out that was your great cousin. And so now you're back in that building. And now I'm back in that building. What does that feel like to be in that building and working actively as an artist in that building? Yeah, initially... I was not very comfortable because I wasn't sure what would manifest itself. It was renovated in a way that it kept the floors and a lot of the original doors. There are no pews in the sanctuary. Like I said, that's the area I work in. And so to this day, I still don't work there at night. But with the sun coming in on the stained glass windows and the way they would shine on my quilts, because I could lay everything out. I could lay all my quilts out. I could see what I had clearly, how I would repurpose them, how I would mix and match them. It just felt so right. And I just could not believe that connection, you know, revealed itself Now, most of the people like my mother and my cousin Gloria that would always have that talk, they have passed on since then. I haven't been able to share with them that look where I am. I'm in that sanctuary where the cousin died in the pulpit. But I feel like somehow their passing made that connection even more possible. How do you feel that being in that space is changing your work? How are you working differently because you're there than you might have otherwise? Well, I feel that more so than changing my technique, style, and concept, it just keeps opening up doors to people that I meet, how I met you, okay? I have to go into that because I found that to be so fascinating. But of course, you know, it was ASAP Rocky mm-hmm. wearing that great grandma's quilt on that red carpet event for the Met. And when I saw it, I teared up. I said, oh, my gosh, 
this whole new generation is introducing quilts, you know, and I felt I took it very personally. You know, he was revealing my grandmother. He was like telling her stories on a whole new way. I mean, it was just so emotional to me that I had to start looking up. Where is this coming from? Who dressed this guy like this? Who is this guy to have the audacity to wear it like a king's robe? And then I found this article of, from this young lady, this woman that recognized this puff quilt from her great grandmother and how she had put it in a thrift shop somewhere near where I guess you guys got it. But then I saw your name, Zach Foster. Okay. I say, let me follow him on Instagram. Let me see who this guy is. And then when I saw your work, your improvisational quilts, your hand stitches are just went through my heart, my spirit, my soul again. And then I heard you speaking and how you would just sit on a bench somewhere in a park, mending and talking so lovely. It just soothed my soul. That's how I stumbled upon you. But I felt like that's what being at the church has started to do. It's like opening up these doors and avenues and other forms of quilting that I knew of on a subconscious level, but now it's like bringing it full force into my life. So as I'm sitting here with you and I am stitching on this 1930s crazy quilt, I love crazy quilts, but this crazy quilt, it doesn't have all the fancy fabrics, it's all cotton and it doesn't have a lot of embellishments. So I'm putting my own imprint on it. I'm like doing these feather stitches and I probably later add some buttons and ribbons and things of that nature to it. Well, I, I am so glad that our paths have crossed because you and I early on a few months ago hopped on the phone one evening and chatted for a little while. Yeah. And yeah. It was one of those conversations where it felt like, okay, this is just going to be the first of many. <laughs> I felt so too. When you um, said that you were from North Carolina and that you had thoughts of maybe going back home. I thought about, you know, when I returned to North Carolina, because I lived in Maryland for quite some time, and everything worked out when I moved back to North Carolina because my parents were getting older. I needed to kind of be here with my mother that lived until last August, uh, 99 years old. and. I got to see her transition from a very happy, full life that she lived to just passing away in her bed. And I was always afraid of death until I was able to witness that. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. And so I'm here in my family's house. And, you know, your last conversation you had with the uh, Emma Freeman, and how she was back in her home and bearing books in a backyard that she probably played in. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, just the turning over the dirt stirs up so many things. And that's why I did not want to modernize my mother's house while she was still living. I wanted everything to stay the same. And so when she transitioned on, I said, okay, 
I can start turning over dirt, tearing down bricks. And all of that kicks up a whole nother energy when that starts to take place. So I started visualizing when you were thinking about going back home and what that would be for you, even just your visit, you know, start putting things in order and about your plans and what it's like to really be back home with your folks. Yeah, I appreciate that, Beverly. Can we sit with that for just a minute and and think about home and what it feels like to leave home, if you want to talk about that, and then what it feels like to come home? Um, so much of the work that I'm planning on doing here at this residency is around those ideas specifically. And so I'm collecting stories about why people leave home when they do and why they come home when they do. When I was growing up, when you grow up, people know, they think they know you. I mean, they call you by your nickname. They always say, you know, that's so-and-so's daughter, that's so-and-so's son. They peg you, right? And I was trying to get away from that. And just like, I was always told that I was very spoiled. I had a cousin that always said I was rocking to the core. I never knew what that meant. But that's when I really became attached to quilts because when I was going to see my grandmother, Ada, in Blacksburg, South Carolina, I slept comfortably. I loved it. But she would put this patchwork quilt on me. And I was in a room by myself right off the kitchen of her house. And I loved it. That always stayed in my memory. It wasn't until I started going to school and uh, working on my second degree that uh, I became reacquainted with quilts as far as making them and displaying them and, you know, all that full use of quilts. But leaving home is necessary, I think, for us to see a different aspect about ourselves without those labels. And then there comes a time when it's time to come back home. And when I, I was ready to come back home when it was time for me to. Uh, some of my college friends that I hung out with, they were going in different directions. And I just didn't want to stay in Baltimore by myself. Uh, when I came back home, I became reacquainted with my hometown and my relatives. But those same stories I left were there. But because my mindset had changed, I welcomed them. It wasn't that bad. It was like good information. It was a very good thing. I really appreciate what you said, that maybe we need to get a little bit of distance from home in order to understand, one, who we are, and two, what home means to us. And if we don't ever get a little bit of a distance, that perhaps can be difficult. I know that when I was in college and first went down to Mexico, that's where I learned Spanish. Um, I, I came to know myself in a very different way than I'd ever known myself before, away from my friends, away from yeah. the Southern Baptist church that I had grown up in. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I came back from just a short time in Mexico a completely changed mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And so there, there is something there, isn't it? About stepping away helps us see home more clearly. I remember a story about Jesus when he had to leave his hometown because he could never really grow into his full self because they kept always saying, that's Joseph's boy, right? The carpenter's son. And... He even talks about the importance of stepping away and then being able to return. There are growing pains 
in every aspect of our lives, right? But once we get past those, um, it helps you to move closer, I feel, to our inner being, like answering so many questions a lot, like who we're supposed to be, what we're meant to be. And and then this whole quilting thing, it's just another whole world. I know that our talk, like we're having, it's like to get like beyond the layers of the quilting and even deeper what it implies. And I know that we like to work with um, vintage quilts. And like as I'm working on this uh, 1930-ish crazy quilt, every time I put a needle through it and put my own stitch through it, it's like I'm connecting to the quilter that had it before. And so a lot of thoughts go through my mind like, I hope that I'm pleasing them for one thing with my stitch that is no way at the level of their stitch because I can see their little hand stitches. Sometimes when I'm working on old quilts, I find myself like you thinking of the original maker and usually we don't know who they were, right? But that doesn't keep our minds from (laughs) imagining somebody, right? And sometimes I wonder what they would have thought of me as a gay man working on their quilt. And sometimes it feels good. I like to imagine that there's a lot of warm-hearted grandmas in our past. <laughs> yeah. Would have loved my company, you know? But then sometimes I wonder, maybe not. Maybe they wouldn't have been comfortable with this. Do you, is that something that ever crosses your mind when you're working on quilts? You know, I don't know the race of the person that worked on this quilt that I'm working on. But I feel just putting myself in their place and someone working on my quilt, I'm feeling an essence more than a physical person. And so to me, I think it probably doesn't matter as long as um, I'm respecting it. And I do respect it. Every quilt that I get, every vintage quilt, It's like, okay, thank you for allowing me to have this quilt. So I never feel that there's a disapproval because of my race. So you're you're coming at it from the heart perspective. Yes. The threads that connect us all. I was listening to an interview recently with the poet uh, Jane Hirschfield. Are you familiar with her work? Gosh, that name sounds so familiar. She edited one of my favorite uh, poetry anthologies uh-huh. called Women in Praise of the Sacred, 43 Centuries of Women's Poetry or something like that. Uh-huh. So it's just this epic scope. Anyway, I was listening to Jane Hirschfeld talk recently about the importance of poetry. And my mind went to our conversation because I've been kind of, you know, getting ready for it all week thinking about it. <laughs> and she says... It, it's so important what you intend to do with your work, right? Yes, yes. And she gives us this metaphor, and I want to run it by you. She says, if you want to bake a cake, mm-hmm. you find a recipe, right? But if you want to understand something about the last cake your mother ever baked when she was living, mm. you read a poem. Mm. And if we were to put that, I kind of want to explore this idea with you. If we were to put that in quilting terms, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it would sound something like if you want to keep warm, you go to the store and you buy a blanket. Yeah. But if you want to understand something about home, 
and memory and story, mm -hmm. you make a quilt. Mm, yeah. Then this is where I, I was curious about you because you take it one step further, I think, with your work, right? Because mm -hmm. you're taking a quilt that's already been made. The poem has already been written in your hands right. and you're adding your own touch, some kind of a third element to that. Right. And so what is it? What, what, by adding your touch, what are you adding to the quilts that you work with? I feel like I'm adding another dimension to the quilts. I'm giving it another life. Um, one that adds to my life and leads me closer to my inner being, those questions I have for my guides. And then also it's somehow answering the question to the person that had the quilt previously. It's like completing a puzzle. And I feel like if it's adding that much to my life and taking me to these different dimensions and answering all these questions and revealing uh, questions that my family was not able to answer, um, surely it's fulfilling something on the other level with the, the quilter that never got to complete this quilt. It's now a completion for them. Somehow, I, I truly believe that. Do you ever imagine someone picking up a quilt that you've added on to yeah. years down the road wow. and retooling it, reworking it, remaking it? Is that something that ever enters into your creative process? As you're, as you're yeah. Working? As I work on these individual quilts, I think of someone taking my actual quilts somewhere down the line and adding to them and it doesn't bother me or disturb me at all because they feel like it's a cycle. It's destiny. It's kind of meant to be. And so if I'm allowed to work on this person's quilt that they weren't able to complete, you know, that could very well happen to us because there's going to be a quilt that's going to be our stopping point. I don't know what state or form it will be in. But there is going to be one of our quilts that it may stop right at that stitch. And I think that because of the journeys we're going through now, we will be welcoming of that because we would have evolved to that level of acceptance. But, you know, I think about this conversation that we're having, right, and how we're talking on a level that's not always tangible and how a lot of quilt art historians, sometimes they don't quite put a lot of stock in things they can't see. But I think about uh, one of my favorite reads, uh, Hidden in Plain View by um, Tubin. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. And how they mm -hmm. talked, how, um, Secret codes were hidden in the quilts and how a lot of quilt historians still can't really get with that because they feel there's no scientific proof of it. But um, how Tubin would interview quilters and they talked of ancestors passing those stories on on how they hid the, the secret codes into the quilts during the Underground Railroad. And I so totally believe in that. I like my new work that I'm working on. I always try to include some of those quilt patterns into my quilt. Well, this might be a good time to give us uh, just the broad strokes of your work. Okay, because yeah, I do take 
the vintage fabrics and I pair them with my graphite portrait drawings. That's a commonality in my design. And it started when I was in graduate school. I mean, I had to um, fulfill an advanced drawing class. So I'm the only one there um, drawing and sewing. And part of the studio uh, was to give each of us yards and yards of canvas. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with this canvas? At this time, that's when I started exploring uh, painting with my graphites and my quilting. But I would draw these huge figures in graphite on the canvas. And a lot of it was to relieve a lot of energy. My images were of like Aunt Jemima images, huge um, bringing, you know, just taking control of my own story, my own history. As I started drawing these images that mainly came out of an imagination of, like I said, Aunt Jemima's, a big mama's cooking in the kitchen, I started to realize that some of these people were my ancestors and my relatives. They took on a personal thing. So, I continue the graphite drawings, but now they're more so of my ancestors. I use scrapbooks, old photographs, black and white photographs. I have uh, cousins that have images that go all the way back to the late 1800s. I take their images and I start to draw. Like right now, I'm drawing images of my sister Evangeline. She's my oldest sister, and I'm a very private person. But right around this time, I get very sad. My birthday is coming up. And my oldest sister, whom I loved dearly. One moment. Mm-hmm. Take your time. She, um, she took her life mm. on my birthday. Mm. And I have these images that, like beckon me. I can start out looking through the photo albums. Sometimes I use my sisters, my nephews to model for me. But as I draw, the images start to take on a whole nother form. And it won't let me stop shading, drawing, rendering until this other person like comes through. So I started with my sister Evangel. And she's maybe 10 years old. She has these braids in her hair. And then it's starting to evolve into these other people. And when I start to research, I find all these, these other evangelists in my family that date back to the late 1700s. I mean, all the way back to the masters that owned my family, the Blaylocks and the Wissanots. And this is history I hadn't known before because I do a lot of research. That's part of my inspiration for my quilts. And I start finding these evangelists going all the way back that I never knew of. And they're starting to take place on this canvas that I'm drawing, like I'm getting ready for this series. And sometimes I feel that I just can't get away from this subject matter. But during the emancipation, 
during the 1860s, 63, when um, the first slaves were freed, they started looking for their relatives. Now, when I was coming up and I was learning that history and I would see images, it was just like we were just meandering, didn't know what to do. Now that the master has set us free, what do we do? But in actuality, the enslaved, the freed slaves now, they're looking for their ancestors all over the place. They are documenting letters placed in newspapers uh, locally as well as nationally looking for their people. And I feel like this is what's beckoning me. It won't let me go. It still has me searching for these ancestors. Some of them I never know. My family's never mentioned. And going back as far as the early 1700s, they're manifesting themselves through my drawings. And this is kind of where my artwork is. I'm going through this emotional change while I'm trying to work. And, you know, I have a gallerist that I love dearly, but that pressure is there to continue to create. But also that desire for me to like kind of wait on my guides, learn to kind of be obedient and look for the signs and symbols. Uh, that doesn't have a timeline. So I'm trying to do things in between time until they beckon me again and speak to me again and guide my hands with these drawings. So I have like these com incomplete drawings over my studio. But um, I have learned to look at every opportunity that is a sign that I will get there, that the message, trust the process is already lined up, okay? We're kind of catching up to the process, right? And so it's slowing me down. Like I said, I'm doing my stitches as we talk, but I'm also knowing that it's helping me to be able to uh, relax myself so I can hear more, uh, so I can continue my process, like what I'm doing with this new series of Still Searching. And um, these girls that have manifest themselves on this latest quilt, you can see that on my Instagram with the red quilt, they are still incomplete. It hasn't changed from that Instagram image because uh, the voices kind of stopped on me, but they are changing into these people with these names of Evangeline. So that's kind of the background of, how I am creating my work and how it, how I'm inspired and how I come up with my concepts and ideas. But um, I never really share that story about my sister with too many people because, um, like I said, I'm a very private person. Well, I'm really appreciative that you did share it this morning. I'm thinking that you know, there's when you ask the question, you know, what what emote, what motivates you to make the work that you make? What questions are you asking when you work? There's the short answer. There's the mm -hmm. professional answer. Mm -hmm. There's the artist statement answer. Yes. And then there's 
the deep answer. Yeah. And what you're talking about reminds me that we have questions in our lives, but then we also have larger questions of our family, of our history, of generations. Yes. And you're doing in these quilts, it sounds like you're doing intergenerational work here. Yes. And you're using the metaphor of patchwork to bring disparate loose ends together. Yes. Into something that's whole and unified. Yes. I have some questions for you okay. about your portraits, if you don't mind. Sure. One of the things that immediately grabs me about all of your quilt portraits mm-hmm. is that the people that you have represented are looking directly at us. Mm-hmm. Their heads may be slightly lowered in some cases, but they're still making direct eye contact. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but mm-hmm. I don't believe you have portraits where your subjects are looking away. No. Is that intentional? Yeah, I mean, uh, even with the latest portraits that I have, and they look like they're side-gazing, but when you stand in a certain position, they're still looking. Because mm-hmm. I try to switch up a little bit. I just keep things fresh for me. But I feel like there will be a time. Right now isn't the time. That's what I'm being told. Right now isn't the time to do a lot of uh, switching up because there's still so many stories and and ancestors said have not revealed themselves yet. But they, uh, you know, it's just limitless. That's true, that direct gaze, that direct encounter with the the viewer, with myself. Um, yeah, that is still there. And as I said before, these images are gazing to the side, but yet they're still following. They're still very much engaged with the viewer. And you can't shake them. Can't shake it. Not yet. Can't shake it. Your portraits are graphite portraits. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times I notice that the clothes that your subjects are wearing Mm -hmm. are in color. There'll be a fabric or maybe you've even painted some. Yeah. But the, the skin tone remains the gray of graphite. Right. It's something about the gray tones, the black and white. You know, I work from a lot of the black and white photographs that are in the family albums. And they like capture a certain time. It has a kind of quality that requires us to like kind of step back. The life is more so in the eyes than the skin tone. And the life is also in the texture of the hair and the style of the hair. The braids are very important. They hold a lot of power going all the way back to the Benin culture. But yeah, the graphite, the skin tone, it's just like requiring our minds to like fill in those spaces and colors that aren't there. But it like takes us to that a, a quiet different time period and it requires a lot of time of the buildup of the shading it will not let me rush through it and then as I said it keeps changing and the features and 
the person and the message and everything. So sometimes if that hits me first, I try to get the portraits out of the way because I know that when the spirit hits me, I've got to kind of obey that. And then sometimes I'm allowed to have fun with the different fabrics and the paints and the colors and what else may be happening behind it. Uh, That's when my academic training may come into play. Uh, It has a lot to do with uh, the photographs that I'm working from and that, that quietness that takes place using that black and white. There's also, as a viewer, for me at least, has the effect of ephemerality of otherworldliness. Yeah. And so to learn what you shared about your sister mm-hmm. feels of a piece with that in a sense. Yeah. And like discovering my cousin Israel, mm-hmm. that was uh, that I ended up in the exact sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a minister for about two years and the sermon that he gave that day had to do with preparing yourself for death. And, you know, I spent a lot of time researching my ancestors. That's what my quotes are all about. I had this six foot two woman come to my door one day and I was like, and she looked to my, like my Aunt Carolee, but I'd never seen this person before. And she wanted to know if I had any obituaries that she could copy and that she was my cousin. And it's something, sometimes Southern people don't trust people. (laughs) I mean, like my growing up in the South, and we certainly don't give out obituaries and pictures because they're like so precious. But I trusted her. She said, I'm going right up here to the library and I'll make copies. And she came back. And like I said, she's standing six foot two with some attic platforms on. And she began to lay out to me my ancestors that were enslaved that I'd never heard of. And she showed me the tree and broke everything down. And she could take me all the way back. I can actually go all the way back to the 1600s, the starting in South Carolina with the Blaylocks that owned my grandmother, Mariah. You know, I was able to find her grave site. So I do a lot of research. I spend time in South Carolina going through the archives. And um, I found the grave site where my grandmother, Mariah, born in 1825, and my grandmother, Spain, that was born in 1826. I found their grave sites, and I do a lot of rubbings. Every time I go down, something is very different about it, like, One time I went down and all these butterflies just surrounded me at my grandmother Mariah's gravesite. And my sister Carolyn that gets involved in all of these activities with me, thank goodness. She was my witness, right? I thought they were moths because they were white, but she told me they were a certain kind of butterfly. And then I really believed it was like my ancestors that were meeting me there because my ancestors just talk about how, you know, you don't need to be afraid of the graveyard, which I used to be. When I went there and I started my rubbings, all of these butterflies came out and one landed right on my phone so I couldn't record it. And I moved my phone around. It would not leave. But my sister's a witness. I'm like, Carolyn, do you see this? And we waited for it to leave. It would not. We got in the car because 
you know, we're in Blacksburg, South Carolina, and we have to drive back to Charlotte up the highway. And I had to have a talk with this butterfly and it got in the car with me still on top of my phone. No kidding. I'm like, you've got to go now. Okay. Because the wind is going to hit and I can't see having you close up in this car driving all the way to Charlotte. It sat there. It would not move until my sister cranked up the car. And I'm like, what are we going to do? I can't chew it away. It would not move off of my face. And then when we got ready to move slowly, it flew out of the window. And so, and my sister, she has these inclinations even more than I do. Like she's getting hers out through writing books. She's writing this book about dead people's plums and how we used to pick plums at this gravesite. And daddy cut on your light. We were always scared of everything because my aunts would always talk about spirits and believing that spirits could be in fabric and inanimate objects. My aunt Sarah would talk about that all the time. But when I think about my family roots being Yoruba, Benin, Togo, those kinds of things aren't foreign to my culture. But when I get my vintage quilts, I smudge. Do you ever smudge no, your quilts? No, I like the idea. Yeah. So eventually I have got to get your address because there's some things I need to send you. Some wool mountain socks <laughs> and so and some sage so you can smudge. I'd love okay? that. Thank you, Beverly. Yes. So, um, but I smudge my fabrics and um, when I would uh, read my, one of my other books, Flash of the Spirit by uh, Robert Ferris Thompson, that one, and how he equates African design patterns with Southern quilt tops. I understood my grandmother's patchwork quilts more, how, you know, there's no pattern, it's all over the place, right? All of that meandering. But when I was growing up, my relatives would say that the mixing and matching of patterns helped to keep spirits from fi- bad spirits from finding their way into the textile. When you look at kente cloth, an, an African print, how it moves around, known as offbeat phrasing, just like jazz music, how there's no clear pattern, but it's just like the notes, that movement. And uh, it's the same with the Southern quilt tops. And that's why I love your quilts, that style you use, uh, just like a crazy quilt. Absolutely love it. But I think about those old tales that my ancestors would tell about those quilts and that mixing and matching of patterns. And that even just the thought that a spirit could hide itself in fabric is something that I grew up hearing my people talk about. So going back to my grandmother's graveyard and all these uh, meaningful coincidences, I I can't help but embrace um these experiences that I'm having. I'll tell you a story, Beverly, I want to share with you. And that's, mm-hmm. you may have heard me tell this story before, but I'm going to tell you again. Okay. And that is, I was working on a memory quilt one time and this family had commissioned three memory quilts for the same person who had recently passed. 
And so by the time I'd gotten to quilt number three, I'd been working with his clothes for two or three months. You know, it's pretty steep. And if you looked across my studio, it was nothing but his clothes strewn everywhere. Mm. And the first two quilts were, had their own mystery about them. But the third one was, definitely took a hard left turn from the first two. It looks very different from the first two in composition. And so my process is normally that I'll, I'll do a little mock-up on my design wall. I'll take a picture before I sew anything down and I'll send it to the client. I'll say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And so that's what I had done with this one. And, and because mm-hmm. it was so different, I said, please feel free to say, you know, you're not really feeling this idea that uh, I said, maybe I just like it because it reminds me of when I was a kid and I would collect sea glass and seashells on the beach and I would put mm-hmm. them in order, you know, maybe by size or maybe by color. I'd line uh-huh. them up. <laughs> and I sent them that text and they responded right away with, that was Trey's favorite thing to do. Trey was the person we were making the quilts for. He said he would walk the yeah. beaches around Charleston, picking up those little mm-hmm. pieces of sea glass and seashells, and they would make um, statues and sculptures out of them. And so mm-hmm. I don't know... I I don't know the mechanics of how that worked, but I have to believe that by spending so much time reflecting on who Trey was as a person, even though I never actually met him and spending so much time handling his fabric and the clothes that he spent his life in, that something was transmitted and that quote came out of it. Wow. So when I think of the ties that bind you and me together, that's one of the big ones. Yes. Yes, that's one of them. Yeah. That we're connecting with our quilting, with the person that has worked on the quilt, that the quilt is going to. It's not tangible. It's uh, not always planned. But, boy, it takes on a whole different meaning and a whole different spirit. And as I said before, sometimes it can be very draining. And then we have to recruit because we are still living in this dimension and expectations that we have to meet. That's what I've been kind of dealing with with this new series I'm working on. And sometimes my courage uh, doesn't necessarily come from trying a new stitch trying a different fabric, but it comes from really being able to let myself go and being able to listen to my inner being, trust my intuition, and trust that whole process, which is a whole nother thing from what we have learned. You know, I I remember hearing in church growing up, the Lord works in mysterious ways. (laughs) Most definitely. And there's something to be said about the creative process. Yes, Definitely in the creative process. Beverly, I'm, I got one more thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up, and that is about your Igungun sculptures. Now, for those who aren't familiar with an Igungun, it's a ceremonial costume used in masquerades to celebrate deceased ancestors. And it's one of those costumes that can stand as tall as seven feet tall. And it's made of all these strips of fabrics, a lot of patchwork, collage, bright colors. So when I first saw that and I was like, wow, 
my ancestors used to perform in this and I'm doing quilts. I mean, it's the closest thing I could get to that connection. And so I started creating my own igungoons. I haven't done so in a while, but I'm hoping now that I have my space that I might be able to get back to one. But the igungun literally translate as powers concealed. So every strip of fabric shows the age of the igungun, and it can get heavy. And the dancer underneath, is you never see the dancer. It has a very interesting form in that it doesn't have an actual face on the costume. And the top of the costume is flat and square. It's due to a wooden platform underneath it. And so the cloth, the strips hang from that wooden platform. But the dancer in it twirls, creating the the strips of fabric to flare out and create a breeze. And it's said that that breeze is like prayers coming from the ancestors to bless the village and everyone in it, to make sure that they have a good crop, that everybody stays well, everybody is safe. But I think about the Igungun in that it was one of those um, costumes that you couldn't bring over on the bottom of a ship. But it never left the minds and the hearts of the people that were underneath that ship. So it's still being recreated. Um, I hear that in Brazil and, and in Cuba that they're still having these performances And I can't wait to experience one, you know, with everything going on with COVID, everything came to a stop, but that's my next move. Um, I'm always just fascinated with the Igungun, the performance, the power that it has and how that was uh, a very important time for my ancestors. But like I said, they couldn't bring it over under the bottom of a ship but it didn't leave their hearts and minds. So I think about that and other traits and traditions that I passed on to me even now, like I'm creating any gungun because it's like ingrained in my DNA somewhere. When you were creating your first gungun, did you plan, did you ever wear it? Did you ever put it on or was it meant to be a... I did. Uh-huh. I would crawl up under it. I will put it on and twirl under it. That's how I know how heavy it is. And I am only about 4'11 and something and shrinking every day. You thought I was taller, didn't you? You thought I was six feet too. (laughs) I can't wait to pull it out again. But I thank you for asking about it because, you know, I can't wait to see what form it's going to take on. Like I've created some that look like the patchwork quilt. The tops the uh, that my grandmother would quilt, and then I've done some that are just done with these off-white garments that um, are known as Welch white plains. They were created specifically for slaves. It was uh, called the South Carolina Act of I think 1773, where they would restrict slaves from wearing certain clothing, and. Um, I noticed that when you look at a lot of old pictures that a lot of the enslaved would have on those indigo colors, but um, they were changed at some point when the uh, slave owner could see that it was hard for him to detect bodies moving in the woods. 
So the but the white off white garments you can so see indigo, clearly when enslaved people are wearing indigo dyed fabrics in the woods they were hard to see at the nighttime right but the white fabric would stand out oh you could stand out for miles and because see the master would recreate uh their living quarters where he could stand in his bedroom window and have a good view of everything every movement no matter how far in the woods that white garment would stand out so i it, i created any gungun with nothing but these vintage white off garments and sometimes I will include those in the series that I'm working on now as well. Since our conversation, Beverly, a few months back, mm-hmm. and we talked about enslaved people wearing indigo like that, I have had a handful of moments around dusk where I'm looking off towards the woods. Yeah. And I just wonder. Yeah. Like I was like, I can see how people wearing blue would not be They would right blend now. right in into all of the woodwork. Mm-hmm the hen house, all those structures they could hide behind. So that law that came out in South Carolina required, restricted the enslaved from wearing certain garments. And that off-white garment uh, was created by uh, a group of uh, Welsh brothers. And so when the, when they would bring the slaves over, um, under, underneath the ship, the first thing they would do is hose them off, clean them off, and put them on these garments to be sold. And so I started collecting those garments way before I even started with my combination of vintage and portrait quilts. I would go to these flea markets all over the place, and I would just collect them. And then once I got into graduate school, it made sense why I had all these garments and what I was supposed to do with them. Well, I think you put them to, to beautiful use. Beverly, I do have one more thing I'd like to run by you, and it's a poem by the activist and poet Margie Piercy, and it's called To Be of Use. And you can mm-hmm. tell that even though she's a poet who values words, you can tell that she also values objects and the reason I want to run this poem by you is because I'm curious to know what you see as the work of your work. What do you hope that your objects bring into the world? Like we hear Marge Piercy mm-hmm. talking about here. So you'll know I'm getting towards the end, y'all, when, when you hear me talk about museums, because it's four or five stanzas. Okay, here we go. Okay. The people I love the best jump into work headfirst without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves and ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done 
has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, hopi vases that held corn, are put in museums. But you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. Wow. And it's those last two lines that I really wanted to get your take on. So feel free, take as much time as you need. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. What connections do you make with those lines and your own work? Yeah. Well, gosh, I feel like she was just kind of like reading my whole process with those images that, you know, just popped up in her work that weren't truly invited, but they probably were already there. And then, of course, I think about the work of my people, but I started to think about people that work soil in general. I started thinking about the gleamers and all of those images of people working in the field and And so what is it that you hope your work does out in the world? I'm hoping that it will help people to get in touch with our humane side to understand that we go beyond just the here and now, that a big part of us comes from other people that worked really hard to get us here. And that once we honor that, understand that, respect that, it can actually help us to move forward. I'm kind of hoping that's what people experience. Beverly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. I'm going to miss not seeing you. I mean, I will see you talking to everyone else, but I probably will miss you talking personally to well, me. Well, maybe one of these days we'll just sit and so. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, I'm wondering if you'll rate and review this show so other people can find Seamside and learn more about the inner work of fabric. I'd really appreciate it. And you might also be interested in checking out the zine that I make after these conversations. I sit and ruminate and reflect about different things that came up, put them into this cute little printable, foldable zine. You can stick it in your back pocket and take it anywhere. So there's a link for that in the show notes if you like. And as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. You know, we'll be sitting and sewing again before too long here on Seamside. Take care. Sew something good.